We're going to begin talking about theater tenants and theatrical amusements. We want to begin with the preliminary case against theater tenants and its amusements. We'll look at the broader picture first. Uh, talk about really, in, in some respect, the, the culture and the um, the expectation of the theater. And as we understand that versus what the Bible expects of Christians, it'll hopefully become more and more clear why this has been one of those three things that has been condemned throughout the history of the church. Remember, the, the idea here is the Christian Rubicon three, the, the three things, dicing, dancing, and, and theater. And we've talked about the lot, we've talked about the dance, now we're going to talk about the theater mm-hmm. and <clears throat> the problems that are inherent in theatrical amusements. <clears throat> so the first <clears throat> verse, the controlling verse really, is Acts 19.29, and the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. The theater was a very prominent feature in Greek culture. Uh, It was a very well-known feature. You could hardly go to any city in the Greek Empire and then later in the Roman Empire that would not have been uh, possessed of at least one theater. Despite what a lot of the heathen moralists would say about it, it still managed to get a fairly large patronage. (coughs) So we need to talk about what is meant by theater, what the word, the connotation of the word is, and and how this has bearing on the subject at hand. And then we need to discuss, as I said, the culture, the expectations of theater versus the cultural expectations of the Bible. Because if we put the two side by side and begin our comparison, I think what we'll see is that there are two not only different points of view, but hopefully you'll you'll begin to understand that these are two very, very contrary points of view. Now this idea or this issue really of theater tenants impacts a lot of things. Nowadays, you can hardly go anywhere without something playing on some screen. We've got advertisements, and we have a very active media that's involved with shaping and reshaping public opinion. That's nothing new. And the fact is that from the earliest days, from the rise of theater, the power of the spectacle to reshape the way people think about things has been well known and noted, which is precisely why even the heathen moralists were opposed to it. So we're going to talk about some of the issues involved there. So I think these are the first things we need to discuss. Uh, There are separate discussions that we need to have with respect to acting and even with what the Bible has to say specifically about attendance upon these kinds of things. I don't want to deal with all of that at one time. We're going to take a few weeks to go over this topic I I really want to go over the material as detailed as possible because this is, in some respects, not only the most pervasive, but also 
the most damaging to people spiritually and emotionally. <clears throat> I, I think the rise in uh, so-called mental illness is probably relatively easily traceable to this sort of material and the way it's presented. It brings into conflict and it's meant to. And as we talk about what the Greeks understood going on in the theater, again, hopefully it will become more and more apparent as to why this A, has such a power and B, has such an attraction. Why it is that people get addicted to theatrical amusements. Remember, there's been some of that in every one of these things. People, the, the lot has that characteristic. Uh, dancing has that characteristic. But theatrical amusements have that characteristic, if possible, uh, at, at an exponential rate. Uh, it, it has a way of gaining access to our innermost being and affecting the way we perceive ourselves and the world around us, it's no mistake. If we were to look at the history of television, for example, uh, that television got rolled out not to show people programming, but to sell products after World War II. They had the technology before the war, but they didn't know what to do with it. You know, the shows are there to soften you up for the product sell. But the fact is that the shows and all of that material in between has also been used to reconstruct the vision, the morality, and the sense of what is right and wrong and decent not only in this country, but around the world. It has facilitated every kind of moral degradation more than it's ever facilitated any kind of moral rehabilitation. So whatever could be said about its potentials, just like uh, all of these things, We have to examine it as it is. You know, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And all the theory in the world as to how it could do this or that uh, really, I think, stands condemned in this very simple fact, which we're going to encounter again and again as we discuss this. Despite all of the the reformers of theater and now of movies, you know, trying to make sure... First, that they were raided, and then that we knew uh, whether or not it was family-safe material and all of that. Despite all of those kinds of of, um, moral reforms, whether they arose from within or were imposed from without, the tendency has been a continual downgrade as an institution and with very little at this point that anyone could point to and say that's not objectionable, at least I don't see it yet. Most of it has become so objectionable that anyone with any moral compass should be concerned. But we need to remember, it didn't get here overnight. This is a case where they put the frog in the pot and turned on the water and started to heat it gradually. It was incremental, and it was over several generations. But they've used this to de-Christianize the worldview of the West. So I don't think that, there, that we're going to make a mistake when we begin to point out all of these problems. I don't think that 
even the staunchest defender of theater out there, under the guise of their Christian liberty and all of that, would really want to defend it as a moral institution designed to teach virtue and to inculcate um, a great way of life. And then if we have to factor in all of the other things that go into that, as we'll see, it becomes more and more objectionable from the top to the bottom. All the people that support theater attendants who now are standing back and and yelling and screaming about uh, the permissive society we have and the acceptance of sodomy as natural and normal, it came over time and and they let it into their homes through the idiot box known as television. And they've allowed this to go on. It's been going on through theater and through movies and all of that. It's, it's been, again, incremental. The ratcheting up of the breach of the seventh commandment, as well as all of the other commandments. You know, if we were to go commandment by commandment, which we're not going to do, at least not tonight, but if we were to do that again and again, we would find, if you really understand what the gist of the Ten Commandments are, that even the most unobjectionable in the minds of a lot of people are strongly to be objected to in light of the Ten Commandments. So some of that I'll allude to along the way. Uh, Some of it I may not, but I will try to point out some of those objectionable things as we go. All right, the first question then. What do we mean by theater? Now, this is an interesting word. Um, The word theater, theatron, which is a word that appears here in Acts 19, is actually a word derived from theomai. And that word means to wonder, to behold, to view attentively, to contemplate, uh, and particularly indicating a sense of wondering consideration involving a careful and deliberate vision which interprets its object. In other words, the whole point of theater is to put something before you, for you to to view attentively, to contemplate, or to wonder about, and bring you into its vision so that it can interpret reality for you. It's trying to do that. That's the nature of theater. To create a sense of awe. To excite the imagination. To make you learn to think with your feelings rather than logically. To try to get you to run your feelings over your cognitive capacity because they're going to bring you into the vision and interpret it for you. So that's the root of the word. It's highly involved with the idea of fantasy creating a fantastical world to draw you in. Now, it may denote several things, theatron. Theatron can, first of all, denote the theater or the amphitheater itself, which serves for the presentation of dramatic and other spectacles, and also for public assemblies. That's the way it's being used here in Acts 19, if we look at it again, Acts 19, 29, and verse 31. Acts 19, verse 29. And the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord to the theater. In verse 31. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, <clears throat> sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Yeah, the theater... First of all, it's a venue uh, where this dramatical display, and we're eventually going to talk about 
some of the kinds of things that go on in the theater in terms of genre. But first we need to consider it as a venue. It is a venue then for the presentation of these wonders. It's there and it's, it's a building or a structure set aside uh, in this sense, specifically for that use and purpose. Right, secondly, the theater can refer to the audience or the spectators collectively. <clears throat> so that could be the use of the word theatron. That's actually attested in Plato's Symposium. Plato uses it that way, that term. He's talking about the, not just the venue, but the people who are in attendance. And that makes sense because, remember, the whole point of this display is to draw the spectator into the spectacle. To bring about an imaginative union. To draw you in, to interpret your reality, to give you a sense that you are, in fact, part of what is going on. So that the <clears throat> the ancient amphitheaters, and we, in, in America, people in the center of the parts of the world where television is prominent... It, it becomes a very, it's a very bizarre uh, thing. All of a sudden, we have in our homes, as we had in these theaters, rooms that are constructed in such a way that people aren't facing one another, but they're all facing the screen or the or the the stage, the virtual stage. That's all a screen is. They're facing that. There's no interaction among people. All of their interaction is aimed at the stage, the spectacle. So that in large venues, what you have are literally hundreds and maybe thousands of people engaging in a collective fantasy that is being interpreted for them. And they come out of there feeling as if they've all experienced the same thing, even though there's been no interaction necessarily between any of the spectators. That's why they're part of the theater. That's why a lot of modern theater has developed aspects of it where they have the actors and, and even scenes taking place off of the stage and amongst people in the auditorium. <clears throat> it's just the next step because theater involves, and, and they've always understood that it involves not just the venue, but the spectators. And finally, it, the word theatron does involve and, and speaks of the play or the spectacle seen in the theater. And that was used in this sense amongst ancient Greek authors. So we have all three of these usages going on and attested. <coughs> so theatron, <coughs> theatron really is a word which brings together the spectator, the spectacle, and the venue of the spectacle. It's all part and parcel in some respect of the same thing. Now, theater was also used for other purposes in the ancient world. Criminals were sometimes exposed and punished in the theater. And again, going back and looking at Acts 19, 29 to 31, That'll help you understand a little bit better what's going on here and why this venue is chosen. 
Acts 19, verses 29-31. And the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed <coughs> one accord into the theater. When Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him, that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Yeah, what, what are they doing? They're grabbing Gaius and Aristarchus, or they're taking him in there, to make a public spectacle of them. You know, this is what they're doing. They're going to subject them to this kind of interaction between what is going on at the front and on the stage before the spectators and the spectators themselves. Spectators are all taken up in this. And Paul wants to go in there and try to get them. And his friends say, hey, don't go in there. Bad idea. <clears throat> Criminals, when we talk about them being exposed, uh, we're talking about them being taken in, uh, being stripped down to a certain degree, and very often flogged, or in some other way taunted or, or punished. You know, feeding Christians to the lions was a form of theater to expose them to that. That was a, that was a theatrical uh, amusement that the Romans had. But it wasn't new. They just adapted it to the Christians. This is something that was very common. And there are reasons for that. If we were to look into the history of uh, theater, <clears throat> its very earliest beginnings, and, and the genre of theater, whether we're talking about drama, tragedy, comedy, uh, those things were all kinds of worship services that were offered up to the, the various pagan deities. And they were, they were fantastical worship. This is why, in fact, the Roman Church and Eastern Orthodoxy, to some extent, is bought into some of this stuff, where there's a lot of this spectacle in their worship. There's a fantastical nature. The, the keeping of the calendar is all part of this theatricalness, <clears throat> where they're trying to bring the spectator into and interpret for them the reality before them uh, in a very orchestrated way. All right, the Stoics used to, to express the idea that the drama presented is a spectacle for gods and men to behold. <clears throat> that was the idea. What was going on there was something, <clears throat> something to be beheld <clears throat> by the gods and by the men. And that usage, the Stoic usage, is in fact echoed in the New Testament, wherein the apostles are set, said to be set forth in this manner. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 9. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. Yeah, we're made a spectacle. That, it's the same word, the, the theatron. It's the same word. They're made a spectacle. They made a theater in which men and angels can behold uh, the unfolding of, of this uh, presentation of the gospel. Its verbal form, the verbal form of this word is theatrizomai, <clears throat> to expose publicly. And it's also used to express this idea as it pertains to believers more generally, in Hebrews 10, 33. Hebrews 10, verse 33. Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock by the fire of purges and afflictions, partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. Yeah, the word gazing stock is that same word. It's, a, it's the verbal form of that. They're made a gazing stock, a spectacle. It's a theater. It's an unfolding. It's a drama being presented for the gods and men, or 
for angels and men in this case. Uh, this idea is, although this is a Greek word, the idea is not uh, alien to Hebrew thought. It's present, as a matter of fact, in the book of Job. And this idea, in fact, I think provides a little bit of understanding of the backdrop if we look at Job 2, 1 to 6. Job 2, 1 to 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, Going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to, to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thy hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in hand, but save his life. Yeah, the idea here is really the same idea that the Greeks have uh, with the gods and men beholding this spectacle. Except in this case, it's really the true God and Satan and the angels and so on, beholding this spectacle, this drama unfolding in the life of Job. He's on stage. <clears throat> He's, in fact, being held forth as an example. And the idea in all of this drama, as the Stoics and other Greeks would understand uh, when they had this in mind, this idea of a spectacle, is that you have a man or men who are in fact contending with the fates. Uh, their lives are being hammered by forces outside of their control. And how do they conform themselves to their situation, and how do they rise above it? What is the issue? You know, a hero responds in one way. There is this idea of hero heroic behavior when men rise above all of that. That idea, all of those ideas really come out of this concept of stage and theater. By theater, then, we need to understand the complex of means, which centers upon the notion of public spectacles that are being presented for the contemplation, wonder, and amusement of spectators. That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about theater, then. We're talking about the whole, the whole thing, but at the center of it is this spectacle designed to draw you in, designed to get your attention. Designed, if not to uh, to give you something to contemplate, designed to dazzle you and bring you to wonder. Designed in some way to bring you to amusement. And the word amusement, uh, by the way, means without thought meant. <clears throat> so amusement means... To anything that's an amusement is something that stops you from thinking and is designed, in fact, to circumvent your thinking. It's to get around your thinking and make a direct appeal to your emotion or your feelings, your affections. That's what's going on. It's trying to make you reevaluate something. It's trying to get you to think in light of your feelings rather than feel in light of your thought. Ultimately, that's what the appeal is, and that's why it's so powerful. Because fallen men would rather feel and emote than think. Thinking takes work. takes concentration. <coughs> All right, the question then, <clears throat> I think that we need to ask... Uh, at this point is, why should we be concerned with theatrical amusements and 
theater attendance. I mean, what's the big deal anyway? Especially given that we live in an age at a time when the vast majority of professing Christians see absolutely no problem in this. Now, I would argue that the, that very fact alone should be a red flag. Uh, when we look at the, the people and the state of the church and all of that, <clears throat> who's made this decision? <clears throat> Especially when we know the early church and the reformers uh, were on a different side of this question. All right, it's one of the most prominent features of modern religious adherence. There's a very sad inconsistency between acknowledged principles and the habitual practice of persons who profess to be and call themselves Christians. Luke 12, 46 and 47. Luke 12, 46 and 47. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, prepared not himself, Yet, familiarity with Christianity and continuing to do the same thing, uh, so far from being mitigating, it is an aggravating circumstance. The more you know, the more you're responsible to do. The more you know, the more you are responsible to behave. Those who know and don't do are even more guilty. It's not to say that you're not guilty when you do and you don't know, but it is to say if you know and you, do, and you don't do, that, <clears throat> that is even more aggravated. When the creed and conduct are contrary to one another, the doctrines of the Bible are said to be held in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Hey, you hold the truth in unrighteousness. When you profess Christianity, when you profess allegiance to Christ and to the religion of the Bible... doesn't matter how popular a given departure is. Just because we're wholly inconsiderate, or in, I should say inconsistent in, in so many other ways, <clears throat> that inconsistency is not justification for disregarding these kinds of issues where we know where people for generations have pointed and said, there is a problem. There you should be concerned. But the apostolic command, as we'll see in a moment, is first to prove, second, hold to the good, and third, Abstain from evil, even in appearance. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 21 and 22. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Yeah, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And that's what we need to do as we consider the matter of theater. You know, we have to prove it first. We need to make a proof of it. What is its tendency? You know, if it can't prove itself as worthy and worthwhile and combat compatible with Christianity, then we really don't need to go much further in this examination. You know, we, we don't have to hold fast because there's nothing there to hold fast to. Abstain from every appearance of evil. Well, you know, therein, in, in that command, we undoubtedly 
can find any any number of reasons, circumstantial reasons at least, to reject theater. <clears throat> but again, I don't want to deal with the circumstances per se. I want to talk more about the culture, the idea, the mindset. We'll talk about what theater is attempting to do. We have the word in front of us now. We know what that word uh, is connotating. We know that theater is trying to make an end run. Cause us to wonder, behold, or contemplate. To be attentively viewing. Feasting our eyes upon something to an end and a purpose. To give us what might, in fact, end up being a very different view of reality. <clears throat> right, if theatrical amusements either dishonor God or tend to lower our reverence for his authority, or if they lessen our regard to his will, then they show that they are evil. Matthew 6, 9 and 10 and Isaiah 33, 15. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Isaiah 33, verse 15. He that walketh right, righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of, of oppressors, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. <clears throat> that shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. Um, the Lord's Prayer teaches us that we should reverence God and his authority and, and seek to abide by his will. So if, if theater generally is... is cutting contrary to that, it should tell us that there's a problem here. In fact, the instincts of, of early Christians and Reformation Christians was a good one. It's not just the early church that opposed this, uh, although in these kinds of matters of moral and ethics, you know, they're whatever might be said about uh, the direction that the early church begins to take uh, with respect to some doctrines and, and religious practices, morally and ethically, they are very strict, very careful in their walk. And this is being imitated at the time of the Reformation. And these people are all in opposition. All right, first of all... <clears throat> It can hardly be denied that in theatrical amusements, the sacred names of God, including his attributes or perfections, are introduced on the most trifling occasions, uh, most irreverently used, either as mere expletives or as emphatic words to give greater force to the dialogue. I want to look at Exodus 20, verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 7, Thou shalt not take the, the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. It's bad enough that we have to deal with this in, in real life. But when we've got people for simply for amusement's sake, either taking the name of God, some name of God, as a word to give emphasis or as an expletive. Or when they take the attributes and perfections of God again, <clears throat> we've talked about this a number of times. We've talked about the, the, um, the third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain, 
you start using words like holy, good, grace, the gracious. Start taking these words and we use them as filler words. They're vain. They're, they're expletives. Or use them to emphasize something. These are all violations of the commandment. We should be thinking about this. But when we allow people to do all of this for our amusement, <clears throat> there's a real problem. Is it possible that any man who's received the truth in faith will frequent such places and spectacles where the divine name is habitually profaned and all for amusement's sake? Uh, James 5.12. James 5, verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Lest you fall into condemnation. <clears throat> but that, you see, is contrary. We're told to let our words be few, to be careful about what we say. That generally defeats the whole purpose of dramas and tragedies and comedies. Very often, the more words they can get in, the better. All right, the second feature, and this is this, I think, is very contrary to the culture that the Bible would have prescribed for us as Christians, is this. Christians are called to live for eternity, to make sure the salvation of the soul, which is a work that calls for care and watchfulness. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you all so that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in the time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I suffered thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God calls us to make sure the salvation of the soul. He calls us to take an accounting. Yet the language of the stage and theatrical amusements is this, that this life is all. Sometimes they're explicit in that, but if they're not explicit, it's certainly implied in the way that all of these things unfold. You know, each and every incident, of course, becomes a moment, a matter of focus, a focal point. <clears throat> so life is, this life is all, Make the most of it while you can. First uh, Corinthians fifteen thirty two. First Corinthians fifteen verse thirty two. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it to me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, what what advantage is there? You're very hard pressed. Even, and, and I, would, I would almost say especially, with a lot of things that are pervade as family fair. To find that there is any concern outside of this life. It's all focused on this world. You would be hard pressed uh, to wade through a lot of this stuff and find any genuine reverential recognition of a supreme deity you know, to the extent that they they even try to do anything like that it's usually a total perversion they miss the point <coughs> Right. Theatrical amusements represent the attainment of honor, possession, and enjoyment of earthly good, success in some romantic scheme or worldly pleasure as that which deserves attention and will repay the pursuit. Malachi 3, 14 and 15. Malachi 3, verses 14 and 15. Yeah, I said, 
it is a vain it is vain to serve God and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts and now we call the proud happy yea they that work wickedness are set up yea they that tempt God are even delivered yeah, there's there's all there are all kinds of concerns that they bring up but because it's so this worldly centered <clears throat> their concerns focus on these types of things the fact is this all of this is delusion the present state is exhibited under false appearances and the effects are such that it strengthens the fatal enchantment of Satan over the children of this world being led to ruin. 1 Corinthians 15.33 1 Corinthians 15.33 <clears throat> Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good men. Yeah, notice Paul moves from the, the ethics of the Epicurean, let us eat and drink or tomorrow we die, to warning against this very thing. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Why? What? What? What is this? No, they. The stage continually presents under false appearances. Even this world. So it's concerned about this world. It it wants you to focus on this world, but it presents this world as it really is not. It presents this world as the end of. All. <clears throat> this is the focus. <clears throat> Everything is about the here and the now. <clears throat> what it does is those people who are most in need, spiritually speaking, who are most in need of deliverance, are most attracted to this kind of of entertainment because it is deceptive. You know, it's presenting a world different. It's creating a fantasy. It's feeding the escape from reality that people wish to engage in, particularly when they're on the wrong track. Unbelievers really want to escape from the reality. Right, third, <clears throat> the great end and design for which the Bible has been given is to have the sinner converted from the error of his ways and brought to repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. John 6, 63. John 6, verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. <clears throat> they are spirit and they are life. This word teaches us to mortify all evil and corrupt affections, Romans 8, 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, but if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And it also teaches us daily to proceed in all virtue and godliness, 1 Timothy 6, 11. 1 Timothy 6, 11. <coughs> but thou, man of God, pay these things and follow after righteousness. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Okay, what, what is it the Bible is inculcating? It's trying to present us with what we need to know to be brought to a lively faith in God, in Christ. It's teaching us the need to mortify all evil and corrupt affections and daily to proceed in all virtue and godliness. And yet, and this is important, I think, there is nothing more clear than that the theater and theatrical amusements, the theater undermines the pursuit of purity of mind, holiness of affection, and contentment with the things of this world. Second Corinthians seven one and Psalm one oh three one. Second Corinthians seven verse one <clears throat> having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Psalm 101, verse 3. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. The psalmist says, I hate the work of those that turn aside. Theatrical amusements present all of this stuff for our consideration. Again and again. It invites us to contemplate. I'm not simply talking about reading a drama or something like that. I'm talking specifically about the theatricalness of it. You know, that's what provokes the wonder. It's a very different thing to read a play and see a play acted. Reading a play... seldom goes anywhere near the inflaming of the imagination as seeing something being enacted. And that's precisely why it is so easy for this sort of thing to undermine purity of mind, to torpedo any kind of holiness of affection, to make us discontent, in fact, with the things of this world. Things are always presented in a way that is exaggerated or distorted. Remember, they've got a point that they need to get across. And, and so, you know, the dialogue is, is always going to be dialogue that is artificial. And, and in that, hearing that transpire, <clears throat> that kind of dialogue, it raises, lowers, alters our expectations of this world. All these things play on this pursuit of purity of mind. The idea that we have to mortify all evil and corrupt affections, well that goes right out the window when we're being faced with a direct assault on our senses. You know, the fact is we, we like to sin. We enjoy sin. It takes work on our part to get to a point where we don't enjoy it. People like to see other people, what they might call making mistakes, but very often what they consider a mistake is really a sin against the law of God. Going through that, trying to recover in their own power, maybe somehow gaining some <clears throat> moral victory. Theatrical amusements and, and so on, these things engage us to this world, inflame us, as we'll see in a moment. The fact is that they're contrary to this idea of mortifying evil and corruption. If we were to do that, very often these are the things that are going to reawaken, renew, revitalize all these things that we should be mortifying. Mortifying. Right, fourth. <clears throat> Spirituality of the mind is another part of Christian character. For no man can have good hope of heaven unless he has a growing taste and tendency of mind for those things which pertain to eternity. Hebrews twelve fourteen and Colossians three two. Hebrews twelve fourteen follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Colossians <clears throat> 3, verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. We're to set our affections on things that are above. Without holiness, we're not going to see the Lord. And yet, the theater is doing what? It's focusing our attention 
on the things of this world. It's bringing us around to contemplate and wonder at these things. To be caught up in them. The fact is this, the theater not only does not promote such affections, that is, growing taste and tendency of mind for things pertaining to eternity, but in fact it is incompatible with them. Uh, we want to look at Philippians 3.19. Philippians 3, verse 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. <clears throat> whose glory is in their shame. They mind earthly things. We're to set our mind on heavenly things. They glory in their shame. They set them on earthly things. You know, there, there's an incompatibility. It's not simply that the theater is not promoting the affections that the Bible would have promoted. But it is promoting that which is incompatible. That which is running contrary. Without considering the various evils of the theater, it should be noted that the theater has its own peculiar gratification. Its own proper pleasure, which affects the mind by creating vain fancies, rousing base feelings, stimulating animal passions, heating the imagination, transforming life into a dream, and embellishing it with various and impracticable and unattainable pleasures. Psalm 49, uh, 11 to 17. Psalm 49, verses 11 through 17. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This is their way, is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them. In the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for you shall receive me. Selah. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of this when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth he shall carry nothing away, his glory shall not descend after him. Okay. There's a very unrealistic picture of the world that's presented but it reinforces what people unbelievers want to believe about the world that they're not really going to die that everything's going to continue uh, things are going to improve that th these are unrealistic expectations <clears throat> you know they're always angling for some sort of fantasy to come out of reality they're not really prepared to grapple with the fact that we live in a world that is not only tainted by sin, but fractured and, and ruined by sin. So they, they get these vain fancies, and, and they get people stirred up and stimulated. It's a dream. But that's what theater is supposed to do. It's supposed to take you out of this world, reshape your idea in another world and send you back so you can be really discontented with the way things are. So that you can be really confused about how to think. So they can get you to a point where you're going to agree with the gods. The artificial stimulation requires a constant succession from whence arises an increasing desire after anything calculated to pamper and please the imagination. Jeremiah 13, 23. Jeremiah 13, 23. <clears throat> and the Ethiopian changes skin with the leopard of spots. Then may he also do good if that are accustomed to do evil. Yeah, you, the, the, the answer is no. The leopard isn't going to change his spots. The Ethiopian isn't going to change his skin. And you're not going to get accustomed to doing good if you're accustomed to doing evil. You know, the, the fact is, 
as you fill your mind with, with this fare. The more of it you have, the more of it you want. It doesn't satisfy because it really doesn't resonate with reality. It's a vain attempt to recreate a reality in your mind that can never exist. But it creates a longing and a passion, like all sin. It creates an unfulfillable desire. It becomes insatiable. This is why people who read a lot of fiction... For example, have trouble reading nonfiction. You know, the more you engage in this world of fantasy, the less taste you have for reality. It's no mistake that literacy rates are going down as we get more and more of this fantastical interaction going on. It's no mistake that that people's values are being moved from Christian values or semi-Christian values or even a concept of natural law to views of the world which are simply fantastical. With the theater goes a universal corruption of morals. In contrast, Christians are called to be sober, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. <clears throat> but let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and bore in helmet the hope of salvation. Right. In the fifth place, and last, I just want to look at this very briefly, uh, that if we were to survey the Christian graces... What we would find is this. The very things commanded by Scripture are made to appear rude and low in theatrics. It's contrary to Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Yeah, there, there is very often a moral exchange, you know. There, there's a putting of, of evil for good. And sometimes the way they accomplish this is this. They will place some moral good in the hands of a very bad character. And people tend from that to view all of the other sins in a better light. You know, they're not teaching you something to elevate your morality. They're, they're holding out in front of you one piece of morality while they're brainwashing you with respect to a more full view of morality. Most of the moral sentiments of the theater contain principles which the Bible condemns and which is it's the object of religion to root out and destroy. Uh, Galatians 2.18 Galatians 2.18 For if I build again the things which I destroyed and make myself a transgressor Thus it is that the liberal and noble-spirited profligate, as I said, is made to interest the imagination. He's going to win over your heart. He's going to excite you to emulate him. Whereas the mean and low-minded Puritan provokes contempt and derision. And the guy who's more straight-laced, the guy who is actually more personally moral or whatever, he turns out to be the, the public bad guy. You know, the guy who is licentious in his private life, he's the guy that turns out to be the hero. You know, they do this all the time. They mix this stuff up. 
and it brings about a, a morally confused vision, contrary to Proverbs seventeen fifteen. Proverbs seventeen verse fifteen: He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Okay. So the problem with theater, in the first instance, then is if we understand what it's about, it's giving us a view of culture. Very much contrary to, not just, it's not just that it's not presenting a vision of culture in the Bible, or from the Bible, but it's presenting a vision of culture contrary to the Bible. And that should make it objectionable. That should make us concerned. Next time we'll pick up some of the other issues that should raise red flags.